duckies, welcome back to another episode of The Spiritual Games. I got a question for you. Have you been living that Pluto life? I'm your host, Angel. And I'm your other host, Brandon. And this is our twice-monthly podcast dedicated to exploring the wide reaches of spirituality without pretending that any of it makes sense. Because it doesn't make much sense. But we use tools like astrology and tarot to try and help us figure it out. We just uh, finished teaching our two-week workshop on the houses of astrology. And one of the things we discovered about the fifth house of astrology is it is about creativity and children and parenting styles, but it's also about like how you make your luck in the world, how you use your creativity, not just like as a painter or a poet, but to like create your life. Your life is the art. And I do feel like tools such as tarot and astrology, even if they don't always help us make sense of what's going on, they certainly help us gather up more luck and more power so that we can create a life that we want to be living. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is really powerful to get to interact with these tools like that. We were recently asked to uh, be readers at a, a dear friend's birthday party over this last weekend yes honey we sat at those tables while the loud dance music blasted and we gave people that we didn't know little readings and yeah it went, was fun though to like be so like fun. put in the corner as the spiritual gaze and like nobody puts the spiritual gaze <laughs> in a corner well michelle did well, but no it was fine it was a beautiful corner yeah it was really cute and an amazing group of people and it was just like really fun to get to utilize the cards and have all of these mini experiences with people. And it was fun too in those situations because you're usually reading a lot of people who haven't had experience. I had a lot of first time, just people having first time tarot readings. Me too. Yeah. And it was like really f interesting to have people be like, okay, so how did you do this? You know, like, can you show me on the cards at least? And I was like, sure. And I would like just point things i also was using my new garbage pail kids tarot for those of you who know the garbage pail kids and it was definitely a very age appropriate group for that everyone was really responding to them so it was like fun to use the imagery of those cards to help people understand like why they were explaining the situations of their current life i would like a care bears tarot Oh my God, I would love a Care Bears tarot. That I wonder feels if they exist. more age appropriate to me because I don't know these garbage pail kids. Yeah, it was a very specific moment in time that I think anyone of their mid-40s like me would uh, appreciate. But Care Bears are timeless. They're for everyone. They're for every moment of life. Was My Little Pony a thing in your era or no? No, I mean, maybe it was, but uh, it was like happening in my periphery. I didn't really get into that. But like Polly Pocket was a thing. Oh, I remember those. But I feel like Polly Pocket's also been around forever, right? Maybe yeah. she had a resurgence. Maybe yeah. she had like a facelift and came back. Tamagotchis were a big thing. Oh, yeah. that See, it's that I don't understand. But I don't really want like a Tamagotchi tarot. No, but My Little Pony be good because there were a lot of like characters, like they all had personalities, like the Care Bears. So that's what makes like them good archetypal, yeah, you know, beings for a tarot deck. I can't believe 
just going off what you were saying about people getting their first tarot readings with us, how popular this myth that like you have to be given a tarot deck is. Like I had multiple people who were like, oh, I'm so interested in the tarot. And I'm like, well, you should just get yourself a deck. And they're like, I can get myself a deck. I was like, <laughs> yeah. Right. yeah. So if you're out there and you're holding yourself back because you think that you're not a real witch unless somebody gives you a deck, I'm going to tell you right now, give yourself a deck. Yeah. So crazy. Do yourself the favor. Yeah, just get a deck. Just start pulling cards. Yeah. If they're calling to you, they want you. So we're going to forego like our usual back and forth check-in for two reasons. One, we have a really beautiful spirit talk that we've actually released before, but we are re-releasing it with this episode um, for very specific reasons. Yeah, so uh, about a year and a half, two years ago, we had the incredible privilege of being able to have a conversation with Rachel Pollack. And if you don't know Rachel Pollack, she is a creative force. She has written a lot of books on the tarot. She's kind of the eminent tarot scholar of our time, but she also has written some amazing novels and comic books. She famously uh, introduced the first ever trans superhero into the Doom Patrol uh, comic series. And this interview was not just an honor for us, but it was just so beautiful to be able to hear Rachel talk about the things that matter to her most. And at this moment, Rachel is in hospice and she is preparing to leave us on the earth plane. And so I just felt compelled to support her and in any ways that we can energetically surround her with love and let her know that this was an incredible life so well lived truly like a lighthouse a beacon to all of us about how to live from a place of deep authenticity spherically in many directions so we just felt like it it's our first time ever doing this and maybe our last but we are re-releasing this interview so that even if you have heard it you can listen to it with fresh ears and if you never did listen to it then you are in for a treat and the other reason just being that collectively we have both been just managing some health issues with our dog and that's been like taking up a lot of our experience right now so we uh yeah i think are both just like physically and mentally drained from thinking and talking about ourselves <laughs> at the moment. Um, but uh, I'd say if anything, what has been like a helpful element to uh, just like what has been like a bit of a challenging time is the fact that we have this really awesome group that's come together for our current astrology course. And it's nice to have like a just beautiful community of souls to plug into uh, once a week. So thank you to all the folks in our astrology for Queelers and those who are plugging in for certain weeks. It's just been really fun and really great to connect with you all. And we hope you're having fun. We're certainly having a great time. Yeah. 
And if you want to plug in, the next two weeks are going to be about elections and inceptions, which is a astrological technique that we've never taught before, but it's in some ways the most magical because it's about choosing, based on astrology, really good times to launch a business or get married. So those are elections, picking auspicious dates, but inceptions is looking back at something that started and understanding the true nature of it by looking at its chart. So maybe you weren't aware of the astrology when you started your business or you published your book or you went on that first date, but you can cast a chart for it and then you can understand what's really there. So yeah, consider joining us for that if you like. We have a another session on solar returns coming up. And we're finishing with uh, a single workshop on retrogrades because yeah. retrogrades are deeply misunderstood. <laughs> so we're redeeming the retrogrades. Hey, own that retrograde. Um, but speaking of just astrological terms, what we are going to give you right now, though, is a, a cosmic, cosmic update. So we are coming at you just hours after Pluto has made a shift into Aquarius. She's been living that Pluto life. She's getting tired as the captain's wife. She's been drowning in a heap of strife. Because Pluto's opposing a Pluto's opposing a Pluto's opposing a moon. Yes, I have been living that Pluto life because Pluto, I have a very late degree, a 28 degree uh, cancer moon. So Pluto has been just kind of doing a, a little dosy do over the last degrees of Capricorn. And honey, let me tell you, she's a heavy, heavy energy. So small, but so dense. Yeah, but I have not um, been uh, commiserating with any captain's wife. I just want that to be clear. You're not tired of being the captain's wife? I'm not being tired of being the captain's wife. I've never known a captain's wife. You are the captain's wife. You know who the captain is? Who? Pluto. <laughs> I am Pluto's wife. Does that make me Persephone? Yeah. Oh, my God. Well, that would make sense because I have a real Persephone connection. Um. So, anyhow. It's actually, like, very accurate based on our charts, too. Why? Because I have Pluto in Scorpio in the seventh house, which would mean that I am Pluto in yeah. relationships. And I have a Scorpio descendant, which for those of you who recently took our houses class, we talked a lot about the descendant, but you know, it's energy I'm attracted to. So there you have it. I literally married the devil. You did it to yourself. <laughs> Help me. Um, No. It's good. I like a sexy devil. What can I say? But yeah, so Pluto is that energy of transformation, of rebirth, and of power. And I really like to say like personal power specifically. Um, you know, it's, it tries to put us into deeper connection with our own power. So it takes us through these intense soul transformations in order for us to rise more strongly into our power. 
I mean, it doesn't try. It will. It does. Yeah, you don't really have a choice. What Pluto touches is never the same again. And Pluto is connected to the judgment card and the tarot. And the judgment card, the way I like to teach it, it's when Dorothy returns home after her whirlwind experience in Oz, right? She comes back to Kansas, and Kansas is the same, but she is not. And there's no going back. There's no unremembering an experience like that. And so wherever Pluto is in your chart, but also where Pluto is right now in the sky, moving into Aquarius, it's giving us an experience of power, of transformation, that there's no going back from. And so with Pluto and Aquarius, and it's not going to be there for that long, it's only there until July, and then it goes back into Capricorn. It's going to be crossing over the threshold, zero degrees of Aquarius, 29 degrees of Capricorn, until about 2025, and then it stays there in Aquarius. So we're getting the teaser trailer. We're Angel has just corrected me that it's November of 2024. So basically 2025. That's when yeah. Pluto moves into Aquarius and then does not return into Capricorn. So we're in a liminal space, right? We're transforming between Capricorn and Aquarius. But of course, right now, the first time that Pluto moves into Aquarius is when we're going to start to get the, the hints, the whispers of what we can essentially look forward to seeing. Yeah. So, yeah. So come the end of 2024, 2025 until 2043, we enter into this big new, sh you know, collective shift. And we've been in the Capricorn shift since 2008. So, you know, I think we can already see, too, like the interesting power dynamics that were at play between 2008 and now. Um, I mean, honestly, if you just consider like from a United States perspective, like going from like Barack Obama to Donald Trump within that time span um, is quite shocking, but interesting, right? Because it like laid bare all of the like power dynamics at play in a government and uh, gave us a real clear understanding of the soul of our country because we did have a Pluto return at the toward the end of this as well yeah well pluto's all about extremes and so right. that's definitely showing you the extremes right of power yeah i also thought it's just really interesting yesterday were all of those fake ai generated photos of donald trump being arrested oh, that uh -huh. were released and people thought they were real i mean i thought they were real when i saw them <laughs> and i thought oh isn't that such an interesting pluto and aquarius, pluto and aquarius situation it's like right use of power and wrong use of power yeah. Well, and just considering like how much imagery can be doctored these days now, like how much of that is going to come into play, right? Like through the use of technology, like when things get put out there and it's like, is, did this actually happen or did this not happen? Like, yeah, well, it's like an evolution of fake news, right? Like, right. It's, it's not just fake news but they're these like doctored photos or even the fact that i'm just getting wise to this and some of you might have known right. this for a long time <laughs> that all of these people on social media are always using these like subtle face filters uh, yeah honey. like i didn't know that <laughs> I like it. i saw this one video of like what chloe kardashian actually looks like and then like what she looks like whenever she posts a video and it's like shocking pluto and aquarius Yes. Here we go. Yeah. I know. Well, that's like what TikTok has like really, I think, brought up, right? It's like, sure, Instagram was like, here you go. You can swipe left a couple times and 
get a different shade of color and background and now it's like oh yeah no you can just like literally like contour, contour your, your whole face <laughs> and look like a different person um which then good luck in real life because people are like hi who are you have we met and it's like yeah i'm your best friend but also it's so dangerous because then you're like oh well i want to look like this in my real life right or you're living only in like an artificial technology space because you're like addicted to this fake image that you've created and so like you feel insecure going out into the world it's just very interesting like we're all all right well we didn't come here to talk about larsa pippen i'm sorry but didn't we (laughs) didn't we come here to talk about that trash can if you know you know so basically yeah they're you know pluto shifts are really collective you know they are something that affects a generation because people are then born into this period of time right and on some level if we look at pluto being such a like soul transformer it on some level like populates the planet with certain souls who can come in to help uh, initiate or further the energy of that sign yeah the response to the intensity of the times so you can look to where your pluto is to kind of get a generational understanding of what was happening so as lord famously sings the pluto and scorpio generation right that's Mm -hmm. all of us that were being born around the time of hiv around the time when it was either like you know sexual liberation and right before the onset of the virus or what happened right after when there when safe sex was invented there was no safe sex before, right? There was just free love. Right. And so just that in general uh, colored the way a lot of us came into the world. And that's part of our generational impetus, essentially. Yeah. Yeah. Like I'm a Pluto and Libra person. And I feel like, you know, generationally, Pluto and Libra, that time period really helped propel like therapy and relationship dynamics like divorce became a real thing during the Pluto and Libra uh, generation, or at least that time period. So I think the people who were born into Pluto and Libra, like myself, were born into a period where it was like, oh, you need to talk about your feelings. You need to like really get deep and serious in your one-on-one relationships, you know, which is why I think all the people of my generation are very like deeply immersed in like, how do I figure out to be my best self, you know? Yeah, well, that's really interesting just as like a teaching tool to say what Pluto touches, as we already said, like is never the same, but look at it in terms of like Libra. Before that time period, yes, people got divorced, but it was rare. Yeah, or not talked about. And then all of a sudden it became very normalized, right? And then moving Pluto into Scorpio, looking at sex, and all of a sudden we could never look at sex in the same way. It also brought sex out of the closet, Mm-hmm. because people were literally dying. We had to talk about what we do under the sheets. Yeah. Or wherever it is that you do it. Right. Back of a car. Public park. All right, stop airing all of our laundry. Library. <laughs> <laughs> Your mother-in-law's house. Top of a roller coaster peak. Dog park. A target. Salt cave. Oh, that's very Pluto and Scorpio (laughs) having sex in a salt cave. Well, my birthday's coming up. Hey, so how does this then translate to you and your life? Well, finding out where you have Pluto in your chart, where you know, or where you have the beginning degrees of Aquarius, that really helps show that that's where Pluto's entering into. 
this new era. It's ushering in this new level of transformation for you. If you have anything in those early degrees, um, you know, in certain signs in Leo, in Taurus, Scorpio, you're definitely going to be like pushed more in certain ways. I'm just literally clicking into the fact that my zero degree Taurus Chiron is also being affected by this shift. So it's like I'm leaving one thing for another thing. Hey, but, you know, if you then have your uh, air signs, Libra and Gemini, Gemini, you are maybe being, you know, a little more gently ushered in to something or being supported in certain like major transformations. So it's an interesting time to just really uh, dial in. And obviously we'll be talking a lot about Pluto and Aquarius as we continue on. It continues to do other things in the cosmos. But I think just to say, if you are feeling overwhelmed, if you are feeling like your emotional waters are very high, if you're feeling besieged, this is one of the reasons why. Yeah. And it is Aries season. It is the start of the astrological new year. And the chart for Aries season, which essentially prognosticates what's to come for the year, is really positive. There's yeah. a lot of good, beautiful things that are on the horizon for all of us. Right now, it's just a time to like preheat your oven. Just slowly start to think about warming up, you know, like you're warming up the engine or if you live in a really cold place, it's like, you know, heating up your car before you get into it. So it's nice and toasty for you. That's all we have to do right now. Don't feel like you have to be a rocket and go, you know, zero to 104 seconds flat. Not that that's how rockets operate. Uh, they go faster. Who knows? Who knows? I don't care about rockets. Are they really a thing? No. But it's a transit. It'll pass. And the best thing we can all do right now is just like be gentle with ourselves and be receptive, be curious, be paying attention because the things that show up for us in these next couple weeks, like they're going to be with us for a while. So we might as well meet them in real time. Mm -hmm. And I do want to get to our sphere talk, but uh, I, I feel like it would be remiss to not mention that uh, Mars is also finally shifting into cancer. Mars has been uh, in Gemini since I believe last September. Since I believe the French Revolution. <laughs> exactly. Since the last time Pluto was in Aquarius. Since the dinosaurs were roaming the earth. <laughs> They're all damn Mars move. Rawr. Um, but uh but yeah, so we're entering a new level of how we can take action, you know, and I think really being motivated uh, and activated by our emotions by our intuition, by really what our heart wants to be doing. So we've been kind of living in our head a little bit more. So if there are decisions that need to be made or moved on, leave the headspace and ask the heart, all right, which way do you want to go? And I think that's the direction. We all have to get a little bit more in touch with our intuition if we've lost that. And some of them, some of us may have deepened that over this Mars and Gemini, depending on your own chart. Um, so now it's just amplifying it even more. Yeah, I think at its best, Mars and Gemini has helped us to get really clear in our minds about what we want to take action on. And now as it moves into Cancer, we have to connect like the emotional power to it. Like you can't just do something because it's a good idea. I mean, you can try, but with Mars and Cancer, 
it has to be a good idea that you actually believe in, that you're emotionally invested in. Yeah. And because Mars in Cancer answers to the moon who changes signs every two and a half days, there might be some days when you're feeling more connected to it than others, and that's okay too. You just want to pull back and... Again, Pluto and Aquarius, Aquarius is a sign that's 20,000 feet above sea level that gives us the big picture, that helps us see patterns, that will be useful. Because if you're too stuck in the weeds, missing the forest for the trees, then you might give up on something just because you didn't feel like it was a good idea on Tuesday, even though Thursday through Saturday, you were like, no, this actually does matter. So see if you can give yourself a little bit of objectivity to help ferry yourself along. All right, then. That's it, sluts. Now let us, with great pleasure and with a lot of love re-release this beautiful conversation with rachel pollock in this episode's spirit Spirit talk So we are here in the spirit room with Rachel Pollock. We are so excited. I told Rachel, I think in an email, I'm a little giddy to have you here. Um, <laughs> uh, Rachel is a celebrated author. Uh, she's also what I would call the high priestess of the tarot. She has you know, written and published so many books on tarot and really made it accessible to a contemporary audience. And she also is a ritualist and... Um, what else am I forgetting, Rachel? It's, it's quite daunting to introduce you because you have done so much. I write uh, novels. Yes. Yeah, I've had uh, two award-winning fantasy novels, and I've also written comic books. Yes, a Doom Patrol, and I yeah, had the yeah. opportunity to go through and read all of those uh, issues before That's speaking great. with you. Them. It's really hard. I to found find. them online, actually. So really, wow. And it was so. On, you, you saw them online, or did you find a source for them online? No, I actually read them online. There was a look. So someone's done that. Okay, yeah. someone's put them online. Okay, I wonder if that was done with permission because DC Comics owns them. You know, probably not. <laughs> yeah, the internet's like that. I yeah. know. It's, you know, it's a very tricky situation. I had um, somebody. Uh, I somehow became aware of this um, online site that's devoted to science fiction and they had a whole module their whole you know quite a lot it was quite extensive uh of one of my short stories and they printed the story and then they had um all this analysis of it and this praise and lots and lots of people joining in and saying you know how great it was and stuff like this which is very nice so on the other hand they did not ask my permission they didn't tell me and they sure as hell didn't pay for it yeah right and they obviously obviously thought that the fact that they were so you know, praising on my story was all that was necessary. Of course, they didn't tell me because then I might not have given them permission. <laughs> it's, it's, it's shocking. You know? Yeah. Well, the idea of permission just in general, both in ordinary reality and in non-ordinary reality, is something that might be interesting to discuss with you just because... Good question. Good point. Yeah. Um, it's something we talk about sometimes, like mm-hmm. what is the nature of spiritual consent? <laughs> what a great question. Wow. Um, and even in terms of giving readings or doing journey work for people, being really clear about what the permissions are required, because you can see in ordinary reality too, just that story you've shared, people get real sloppy and think they have a right to kind of dig into or expose whatever they want just because they feel connected to it. Well, also because the internet makes it so easy. Right. Mm-hmm. All they have to do is take something and print, scan it, and there it is. <laughs> there it is. Or they, ha- or they could just copy something online and and put it on their site and claim it's theirs, and there it is, you know. Yeah. And it's really difficult to do anything about that. What are some of your 
guidelines in terms of permissions and consent around doing spiritual work? Well, it's hard to describe. I don't do a lot of channeling type of things, almost none. And I don't do, um, how to put it, I don't do things where I go into the person's aura or anything like that. Because mostly this, I use the tarot as a sort of way of communication. Mm -hmm. That in a certain sense, we're both meeting in tarot world. Ah, uh, yes. Me and the other person. And so by asking for a reading, they are already giving consent. For sure. It's more tricky when it comes to asking about a third person. Right. Right. For a long time, no one would do this. No one. The ethical tarot readers wouldn't do it. And I was one of those people who really took a strong stand about that, that you shouldn't um, read, partly because it was unethical, but also partly because you couldn't really tell if you were really getting a true sense of that other person because it was being filtered through the person wanting to know. And then um, what happened was a couple of things. One was that um, the Lunar Mon cards, I don't know if you know what those are, they're a fortune-telling set of cards in the 19th century, had a huge, huge flurry a few years ago. There's still quite a few people, but not like it once was. And those are totally fortune-telling. There's nothing else. There's no spiritual aspiration. There's no, there's actually almost no sense of self-awareness. Mm. The Lunamach tradition, and also in really pretty much traditional fortune-telling from that period and into the modern period, too, for a lot of people, um, the person getting the reading is not looked at at all. Oh. The way Lunaman works is there are 36 cards, mm -hmm. and the traditional, you lay all 36 cards. Then you look for where the man or the woman is, mm. and that's the person getting the reading. You know, But you don't learn anything about them. Everything else is what happens to them. Oh, okay. You know, who will they meet? Where will they go? Um, what's going to happen with their job? What's going to happen with, they have enemies? Do they have friends? And so on and so on, you know? And so, um, and that propelled the idea that, you, yeah, you should be asking about what's going to happen in a fortune-telling sense, and that involves what other people are doing. So there was that aspect of it. Then the aspect of, I started thinking that, you know, it's not up to me. A lot of people still do this thing. I, I, like I said, I think this I was one of the people who initially put this idea forward, that you should have them change their questions. So if they say something like, um, I want to know, you know, is my husband having an affair? <laughs> you should say, well, you know, we can't really look at what someone else is doing, but let's look at your marriage from your point of view. What might you be doing, et cetera, et cetera. And then it struck me that, you know, who am I to tell them they can't ask what they want to know? Hmm. Right? Yeah, it's interesting. And, I realized, and actually, a woman named Susan Weed was instrumental. You know, you know who she is? You've heard of Susan Weed? I haven't. She's an amazing woman. She's an herbalist, uh, a spiritual teacher, a feminist, um, many, many things. And she's quite brilliant. And I was doing a workshop uh, at her center, Mary Greer and I were doing it together, and we were talking about this idea of, you know, what's an okay question, and she said, well, you know, they're not coming to you for therapy, they're coming to you for tarot reading. <laughs> you know, your job is to tell them what they want to know. Yeah, That's your only job. That's, that's how she did it, she said. And so when I started thinking about it, I thought, yeah, she's right, you know, who am I to tell them they shouldn't ask what they want to know? So then I start, that's what I started doing. And around the same time, I started having this technique of, it's, you know, instead of having a set reading, I will ask them, what do you want to know? And no matter what they say, I just write down word for word what they say, as, as best as I possibly can. And then every significant statement is a, a card. Mm. 
So again, the, the person about relationship, about marriage, person say, well, my husband and I have married 26 years, all right? I'm married 26 years. Mm. And they say, and we used to communicate more, but not as much now. We used to communicate more, not as much now, and so on. And that would lead to, that would be the questions for the reading. I love oh, that. Wow. So that's, that's a really powerful way to do readings. For sure. Well, especially yeah. too, I think for you being such a, an amazing writer and, you know, and someone who is so gifted with the tarot, it's so interesting that you found a way to wed those two together in yeah. some unique way. And also it's, it's stories. You know? Yeah. To me, the, um, the, the tarot reading is an evolving story. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm not that interested in hard and fast predictions or revealing secrets of the other world or things like that. You know, I respect for people to do that for sure. But for me, it's really what story are the cards creating in this person's life? Mm-hmm. And how does that story illuminate the actual life? Yeah. So I think that the tarot, obviously sometimes it gives you very, very direct answers. You know, it's factual answers to questions. Other times, so it gives you, because if someone met, someone knew you, and did a story about you on television. <laughs> right. But it wasn't really all the facts of your story. Right. It was a story that would, you would understand yourself better. You know? So there's that kind of reading too. For sure. We talk about that in terms of like personal myth-making. Mm-hmm. Like yeah. what's the story of your life that your descendants might tell of you around a campfire sometime in the oh, future? That's a, that's a great thing. You know, that would be a great reading to do. Wow. Oh, right? That would be. Yeah. I love the center of that. I think I'm going to try that. I'm going to try it with my friend tonight, with Zoe and... See if she wants to do that together. Yes. Well, let us know how it goes. Yeah. Okay. That, that's a, I love that idea. Wow. What's the story of your life that your descendants will tell? Not the facts. What will they tell about? The you? legend, right? So it, yeah. it, gets, uh, it gets blown up a little bit, but mm-hmm. it's still true. It's just not factual. Yeah. And of course, if I'm going to be really honest, you know, I'm, uh, I'm 75 years old and I'm a writer and I've done a lot of books and stuff. And so... I will, this is very almost embarrassing, but I do think about what will be remembered of me. Of course. If my books will be remembered and how I remembered, what will be remembered. Sometimes people who are really famous are not famous for what they were known for in life. Mm-hmm. But you know, Bram Stoker is right, who wrote Dracula. Yeah, sure. That was a minor thing in his life. He was famous when he died as being the personal aide and factotum to the most famous actor of the English-speaking world. I forget his name now. Oh. And he was his servant, and I think he was in love with him. Wow. Um, you know, because, but I don't have any more information than the fact that how Dracula came to be is so cool. So um, there's a scene in the movie of Dracula. In the book, too, I remember the movie, almost my favorite moments in the movie. So um, Jonathan Harker, the victim, you know, mm-hmm. is um, in Castle Dracula. And it's, he's a weird time. He's like strange, you know, it's all weird and stuff. But he's like holding it together and they're trying to think it's okay. And then he has dinner with Dracula and he, and he says, oh, it's wonderful dinner later. He says, oh, oh, but Count, you're not eating? And, no, I have already eaten. <laughs> he says, oh, you have some wine? No, I do not drink wine. <laughs> so then Harker goes to bed, right? And he's lying, he's woken up. He sees these three ethereal women coming towards him, mm-hmm. almost like they're gliding. They're all in white. Mm. And they're like ghosts, but they're real women. They actually seem like real women. And they're coming towards him, kind of gliding forward like they're, you know, 
skating or something on ice or ice or something. So silently, he looks at them and he's kind of fixated and frightened. He, you know, he doesn't know what to do. And suddenly Dracula appears and he swirls his cloak and he says, he's mine. <laughs> and then he back off. And then you see he comes forward and Harker's lying there just about frozen and Dracula bends forward and you see his teeth and his teeth go towards his neck and then it cuts to further on. And that scene was a dream that Bram Stoker had. Oh. And that was the source of the book. Oh, wow. Stoker had this dream that he was lying somewhere and these three women in white came towards him. And then this man all in black in like opera clothes came and said, no, he's mine. And, and banished that. Wow. And woke up. Yeah. So I'm guessing, Henry Irving, that was the actor. I'm guessing that Stoker was in love with Henry Irving. But what's so interesting, like I said, is that that's what he was known for in life. Yeah. And now he's known for the greatest vampire novel ever written. And for pretty much creating, you know, the vampire mythology. Because there were vampire things before him, but they did not take hold in the way Dracula did. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So you never know what's going to survive. Yeah, I guess you can't control your legacy. If anything, if anything, you know, what, what will be left of a person yeah. who did something in the public world? You know, sometimes I fantasize if I really could accurately see into the future, mm -hmm. would I want to look? Or would I be too frightened that I would be totally forgotten in my writing? And it's, it's embarrassing to say this because most people, of course, they're worried about that because they haven't done, you know, they haven't done big things outside what they would they what they would want to know is how their families survived how they're thought of by their family and friends right so it's a big writer ego thing to wonder if your work is going to survive and what people will think of you sure well it actually leads me to a question i wanted to bring to you which is about the idea that asking about the future might in its very essence change the future and the sense mm. of the future and just time in general is not being fixed yes well, this is a big question because a lot of people think time is fixed. But, you know, I don't. How do you begin to wrap your head around the idea of divination in terms of asking about things that are always in flux? Well, the, the tarot reading is in flux too. Right. So I don't see the tarot reading as saying, this is absolutely going to happen. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I just see it somebody saying, this is the way it looks right now. Mm -hmm. Except that after right now includes the tarot reading. Yes. Yes. It's very tricky. The extent to which the tarot reading will change what's being said the tarot reading. Because you can say that, well, the tarot reading will include how the reading will change the future. It will, it will incorporate into itself its impact on the person being read for. Right. And you talk about this as gambling, in a sense. Yeah, a little bit, yeah. That when you pull cards, you're kind of gambling with the future because it's an yeah. open portal where things can change, perhaps? Yes, yeah. And also, I love poker. Poker's a fascination <laughs> of mine. Okay. I only play very little, low, very low-level friendly games. Um, but I just love it. It's just fascinating to me. And so I tried once to do a novel of tarot and poker. There's some good ones. There's a great one called Last Call by Tim Powers. Um, anyway, but I had this, I really went pretty far in merging the two things, except that I realized that my sense of poker was old. It was, you know, the old days of poker was kind of underground and illegal in lots of places. And now not only do you have Indian casinos everywhere, but you also have um, television tournaments. Right. Yeah. And I just, that world I knew nothing about. I didn't know, the other world I only knew because I read books about it, but 
I had a feeling for it, so I stopped doing it. But yeah, but so my, my whole attitude, gambling or resolution is very much incorporated into it, into the dynamic effect of a tarrying in process. Right. And they're both card games, essentially, whether you're yeah, playing poker yeah. or tarot. Here's something interesting. In Europe, uh, tarot games, other divinatory card things are called games. That's the standard word. Mm. Um, in Germany, a tarot is called a tarot spiel, a tarot game. Mm. In um, Holland, it's called tarot spell, same word, but S-P-E-L. And in uh, France, any tarot deck is called the jeu de tarot, the game of tarot. Hmm. So the word game is incorporated into the title of tarot, despite the fact that the jeu de tarot is often used for deeply, deeply occult structures, which involve a very rich interpretation. It makes me think all of a lot of what you're saying, um, it almost feels like it resonates as well with writing to some degree. Yeah, very much you know, so. Yeah, gambling yeah. with the future, <laughs> Put, yeah. putting yourself in front of a, in front of a page or you know now a screen maybe, you know. But a lot of what yeah. you're saying, yeah. Your yeah, writing is very strange that way. Mm -hmm. um, I, I've really been I've been really really fascinated by the fact that there's a level that writing when it's really good, and even when it's not, even when it's not even that good, which is unconscious. Uh huh. It's not like not channel because you're conscious. You know you know you're doing it. And you're thinking what you want to put down, but you're doing stuff that you are not aware of. And this happened to me a lot, and especially with large projects like books. Um, only when it's done, and it's at the stage where the, I get back the printer's proof to look for mistakes in grammar or something like that, or spelling, and they say to me, you are not allowed to change anything except for um, mistakes. To correct copy editing mistakes and that, everything else you cannot change anything and that's the only that's the first point in which i see what the book is about that mm. uh, i it's been about something in my mind and still is that's like not even the surface it's like several layers but underneath all that or maybe really alongside all that there's something about me that's going on in the book yeah that's very very intense in fact one of my books i think was unquestionable fire when i realized that i became kind of freaked out <laughs> oh my God! You what know, am I saying gonna, here? <laughs> you know, people are going to see me in right. a way that it's very naked, but nobody did. They didn't. Just, it wasn't, they're not me. And I saw what was going on, but they, they saw what's going on in the book, not me. So right, yeah, protected that way too. But that's a fascinating process. That level. Yeah, and the unconscious is really the land of of our dreams as well. Yeah, um, yeah. So I loved the story you told about Bram Stoker, and I'm so curious because you work in in such like science fiction that? realms and speculative fiction realms. Ha, what has been your relationship with dreams in your writing? Has have they connected at I don't, all? I don't too often have dreams contribute to stories. I, uh -huh. I do tarrying the stories. I think that's what I need to do one right now after we do this. It's probably the book I've done. I, and maybe a tarrying will fix it. Anyway, <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. what I will do, tarrying for dreams I know are meaningful and they will lead to books sometimes. Oh, okay. Or they'll help explain a book sometimes. And the book I'm writing now, the memoir, begins with two or three dreams. And then and the reading I did to, to understand them better. I'll tell you the first one, it's even before the book begins. It's like the preface only. And it's, it's really fun. I did it years ago. And I never did a reading until soon as wanted to use it in this book. 
And so the dream is very simple. So I dream I'm standing by myself by some wall. And someone comes up and he's kind of like, it's a guy, he's kind of like dark or maybe dressed in dark clothes and kind of slightly menacing looking, you know? He comes up to me and he says, and he looks at me and he says something like, um, you cannot stand against me. I have done things. And so it says he's old enemy, you know? And then I look at him in my dream and I say, um, you cannot harm me. I too have spent time down among the underpinnings. Hmm. And then I woke up. Ooh. And so I forget now the first card, but the last card was, what is meant by down among the underpinnings? And it was the death card. Hmm. So it meant I'd, I'd been in the land of the dead. A lot of the book is about that, is being in the land of the dead. Not, not in a psychic sense of the other side or visiting dead people. In the sense of just being in that realm of energy mm -hmm. that's beyond life. When I was 15, I was diagnosed with terminal bone cancer. And that's true. I mean, it's a long story. But I was expected to die. There was no hope, the doctor said. They told my parents, they told me this, thank goodness. They told my parents. Okay. And my parents did lots of prayers. And when they opened me up, what they found was a large calcium deposit and not cancer. And no one uh, had ever seen anything like that before, apparently. Um, the surgeon got to write a big article in the medical journal. And everyone in the hospital was crowded into the galleries watching this because it was so strange. Wow. You know? So I did a reading and I, I asked, the first question was, what happened when I was 15? And what I really wanted to know was, was it cancer? And then you know, my parents' prayers changed it. And they made vows. Like, you can't ask that. Because so I said, what happened? You know? mm -hmm. So the card was the chariot. And I did this card. And it was in a class. So people were talking about the chariot's willpower, surrendering to divine will, not fighting it. So I said, wait, wait. I said, wait. Astrologically, what is the connection of the card to the chariot? And then when I said, it's cancer. So the cards found the only card in the entire deck that could say, absolutely, yes, it was cancer. Wow. It doesn't matter. Actually, the cancer is meant as an astrological uh -huh. um, symbol, but it's the word. The word is wow. the word. You know, it's a it's pun, you know? Yeah. Like, you know, James Joyce, Finnegan's Wake is all based on puns because puns have their own life, their own spiritual connection. Um, yeah, so that was another thing, you know? And uh, that, that, was, that was possibly the most amazing thing I've ever done in my life. That is it was so intense. Yeah. So one of those readings were like, there's no question about it. <laughs> it's like, you're, you're not trying to figure out what it means. It's yeah. Right. There. Right. You're like, okay, <laughs> got the, got the message. Well, that makes me want to ask you a question that, that came in from one of our students and that I don't know if we can actually answer, but just okay. to talk about how does the tarot work? How does the tarot know? <laughs> Can you right? tell us? Like, <laughs> is it is there a spirit in the cards? Is how is there this this amazing synchronicity that happens? You know, you ask questions yeah. and you always get exactly what you need. How is this happening? Well, not always. You know, you only really get exactly what you really need. Fair. Yeah, if you know, your need is not that strong, you'll get something more vague. It's <laughs> meaningful right. to you. Sure. Yeah. But we needed strong. Like I really, I felt I really needed to know what had happened when I was fifteen. Yeah. And so that need was strong, and it was unequivocal. Yeah. You know, I have, I have to tell you something funny. So you two are too young to remember a, a comedian on television named Professor Irwin Corey. 
he would appear on like um, Johnny Carson on the night show and Ed Sullivan, if you know who he was. Mm -hmm. um, anyway, and he would always come out and he would be dressed in a kind of shabby tuxedo with tails. I hope he had a top hat. And, and, and he wore high top basketball sneakers. <laughs> <laughs> Which those days were just basically the basic canvas shoes. You know? Yeah. Not not fancy now. Anyway, when you come out, they will start talking to shrivel in kind of professor type language. This nonsense. Uh -huh. you know? And then he would do his routine, it'd be very funny. And then he'd go sit down with Johnny Carson. And uh, this was all set up, you know, Carson would say to him, mm -hmm. um, why do you wear sneakers? You go, you pose a two-part question. Why, as plague philosophers throughout the sages, you know, throughout the ages, for generations, generations of years, far be it from me to try this tiny space allotted to me to answer the question of why. Do I wear sneakers? Yes. Do you want to hear that second part? Yes. Yeah, yeah. Yes. So so how does the tower work? You know. How is a question asked by you know the great stages throughout history? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Does the terror work? Yes. Yes. <laughs> that's kind of the answer. I don't know anyone who really can say. And I know loads of people have answers. And the answer is the messages are coming from our spirit guides, from the other side, from the dead. And you know, there's the truth to that, I'm sure, but Ultimately, those are just, to me, they're kind of ways of explaining a mystery. Right. Mm -hmm. And I'm not attacking them because what they're doing is very powerful. But for me, it's temperament, really. I like mystery. I don't like things everything explains easily. For sure. You know? No, and I respect I have a real that. private, private problem with it. And it's a temperamental problem. It's not, it's not a concept of I'm right, anybody else is wrong. It's just my temperament is I prefer the world to be mysterious. Yeah. Yeah. You know, so how does this tarot work? I, I did a reading once, so in, I think it's in Forest of Souls, and uh, it was interesting reading. You know, some of the cards that came up, um, the chariot was the first card, and it came up because we, we will it to work. Right. We, we impose our will, that meaning will emerge from the cards. Hmm. And we impose that before the cards come out. Because mm -hmm. so to me, there's a dynamic exchange of energy between the reader, the person being read for, is another person, and the cards or the deck. I don't think that, you know, on one level, the deck is just a bunch of painted cards. Another level, though, I think it has its own dynamic living energy, and that connects with your energy. And of course, some people will say it's God who's giving the answer. Some people say it's, um, it's, it's the dead, the spirit world, the other side. Some people say it's, you know, angels. Some people say it's Satan. That's a very popular thing among yeah. some evangelical Christians. For know? sure. And um, but to me, all those things are just answers. They yeah. don't really come up with, with the whole truth because, you know, if there was only one truth, then people would know it. Right. Yeah. I thought about life after death as well. Right. You know, a lot of people agree on certain things now, but different people agree on different things. Yeah. Yeah. So the whole other side and soul contract and soul family thing that we see a lot on YouTube, um, that's a very widespread agreement in a certain sense. There's a whole bunch of people. But then, of course, you have hardcore religious people who have a very fixed idea of what happens when you die and why are they wrong? You know, it's, it's hard yeah. to know. Yeah. So it's tarot. It's very, it's very similar. Yeah. How does the tarot work? Another card that came up is... And the Shining Tribe deck, the card called Tradition, was like the Hierophant. Yeah. And it shows a circle of stones, which are meant to be goddesses disguised as stones, to have a meeting. 
And then energy is coming in and out. So energy inside the circle is golden light. When it emerges, it goes out as multicolored. And that's daily life. The inside is the spirit world, inside is daily life. And then the other way, daily life goes in and then it becomes, it becomes spirit inside the circle. And so I realized the answer, that's saying that the tarot cards are like transformers. You know, if you have a house, the energy in the electric wires is too big for the house. So the transformers have to step down the energy coming from the power company to a level that's usable for your house. It won't blow up all your electric things in the house. And so the tarot cards take raw spirit energy and they step it down into these pictures and meanings that it becomes useful to you. I love that. Isn't that a great idea? I you know, love that. But I couldn't, I could not state that this is a fact. Right. right. Yeah. <laughs> it's just a wonderful idea that the tarot card suggested to me. Well, I think you'll like this. I did a very Rachel Pollock thing in that oh, I pulled <laughs> I pulled a tarot card for each of the questions I had thought to ask you. Oh, cool. Wow. And the card that I pulled in in response to the question, how does the tarot work, was the devil, which I thought was very cheeky. Oh, because yes, everyone's cheeky, so absolutely. afraid that the yeah. cards are coming from the devil. But I know, I love that, yeah. It kind, of, yeah. it kind of speaks to what you're saying here, which is this kind of threshold between ordinary reality and non-ordinary reality. And the cards yeah. work by kind of being in that liminal space, which is, is what the devil can suggest. I think that's the sense of humor, too, with the, right? with the cards. Yeah. You know, it's really, they, they know you don't believe that. Exactly, <laughs> right. so they're giving they it also, to me. Yeah, but they know that you know about that idea. And it's like saying, well, it's just like saying, oh, well, you know the answer to that. It's the devil. It's me, Satan. <laughs> I mean, it's it's part of why I love the tarot so much is that sense yeah. of its aliveness. Absolutely, me too. I love uh, the sense of humor, really. really <laughs> for sure. Well, in the devil, I feel like of all the cards in the major arcana, like he's got the jokes, you know? Like if you want somebody <laughs> with jokes, you probably want to go sit with the devil. And a lot of people like him for that. <laughs> yeah. Uh -huh. like him to, I did a reading once for someone. She would have readings with my partner every week, and my partner was available, so I said I would do it. But I was nervous. I didn't know what they'd been talking about and stuff like this. And the first girl was the devil. Oh, my God, the devil. What am I going to say? <laughs> and she goes, oh, my favorite card. Oh, good. <laughs> For the devil meant party. Right. Yeah. Going to a party, having a wild time, having a really great time. That's what the devil meant her. Yeah. I have the devil is, uh, we do a year ahead spread every year and usually around January 1st or 2nd. And I have mm -hmm. the devil at the center of my, of my spread this year. Oh, wow. And to me, because I have a Capricorn moon and the devil is associated with Capricorn, I'm thinking uh -huh. about the devil in terms of discipline because Capricorn really? is such a discipline sign. And okay, when I, enough. and when I think about my Capricorn moon and, and how it really wants to be utilized with its grit and discipline and structure. Mm. It'd be easy for me to go, oh, the devil at the center of the center of the wheel, like, oh, it's going to be a really fun year, which I hope is true. But there's also yeah. a sense like, yeah, there's some discipline that wants to be explored. Yeah. I think. Um, also, if we look beyond your immediate environment, your immediate life, uh, it's a little bit of a scary prediction what kind of year it will be. Right. There's a lot of devil energy in the world right now and in the very most strictest negative sense. Yeah, to me, like sometimes when I think about the devil, and I've I've taken a lot of this from from you and your writings, this idea that if we can't handle the devil or the shadow within us, we're not going to be prepared for what comes after. Yeah, that's true. And so that feels like. Me, yes. Go on. I was going to say that feels like discipline too. Like we must be disciplined mm. in terms of how we relate to our own shadow and our own darkness and mm. our own inner fear, so that we don't allow the outer stuff to. 
Yeah, but in the progress of the tarot, the devil is so late just because of that. But the implication is you've already done everything from, you know, magician to temperance. Right. Before you face the devil. Right. So since most of us haven't. Right. So we have to be a little more careful, of, you know, on that level. Too. Yeah. Yeah. It's the danger. Right. What's your birth date? I'm February 15th. 2.15. And what's your year? 1985. But then for this year, we get 2.15.2021. So we get... um. Two and five is seven, one is eight. One, two is three, two. Oh, so we get death. Yep. 13 is the death year. Yes. Okay. Yeah. So that's so, it's a challenging year. It's a death year, and then you get the devil as the center card. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. For you, sure. So what does it mean to have a death year? <laughs> well, I'm getting ready for it because Angel and I have this, you know, long going discussion about, you know, when does it start does it start on your actual birthday in terms of me shifting from the hanged man into death. Right. Yeah. yeah and sure. I'm starting to agree with Angel that it starts on your birthday. So I've got like a week and a half. I've got like a week left of hanged man before I step <laughs> into death. Well, I managed to prepare you for death yeah. in some ways. And I oh, have yeah. been. And I, this, this past year has been so much about surrender and trust and yeah. acceptance. Mm -hmm. And to me, I'm kind of looking forward to death as the next step for myself because okay. I do feel like I am ready to be wholly changed. And mm. we actually just moved out of where we'd been living for almost a decade and we're now closer to nature. Mm. And there's just, it does seem like I, the Brandon of 2021 is a rebirth and also a funeral for the Brandon that came before. Wow. Yeah, that's, so that's really something that tracks through the year. Yeah, a hundred percent. Yeah, but I do feel you like a snake. Almost like I almost feel like I'm picking up like the beginning. Picking up my shedding. Skin. Yeah. Skin. Oh, yeah. that's great. Yeah, totally. Well, that's I'll wonderful. try to I'll try to sweep it up along the way. Oh, it's fine. That's what I'm here for. <laughs> so, Rachel, you know we're the spiritual gaze. You know that's the that's yes. the podcast. I love that name. Yes. That's the headquarters in which we kind of sit. Yeah, and we're really interested in the intersection, which I think is inherent between queerness and spirituality. And we've mm. talked a little bit about like the inherent spiritual nature of queer people and yeah. this idea that, you know, queer people and trans people have been around since the beginning and nature keeps bringing us back because there is a really important purpose for our being here. Mm. And I'm just curious from your experience, how you might just begin to speak to what is what is the purpose for both queerness, but also transness? What is the unique gift that that experience brings to the world? That's a very difficult question to answer because it's hard to take it out of context. <laughs> I'm sure. Because mm -hmm. there's such a, and there's always a cultural context for any of these kind of queer things. Um, let, me just, let me ask a question of you. Does the word queer encompass trans for you? For me personally, yes, it does. Yeah, because to me, I discovered there are people who do not see those two, do not see trans people as part of queer. And I find that disturbing. Mm. I, I know that the idea is that trans people should be visible on their own. But at the same time, I feel like, you know, a lot of trans kids, I think, would take comfort in being part of this larger queer culture. Yeah, for sure. And so I worry a bit about this. This is a personal thing. This came up in reading somebody's book. So yeah, I think it's personal, and I can't speak to the trans experience. Uh -huh. yeah. But I know some trans people. You know, they want to pass and they want to be part of who they feel yeah. they've always been, and so they right. don't identify. I with get that. Yes. Yeah. So, so I think, in a certain sense, 
And for any kind of, you know, not acceptable sexuality or identity, it's up to you, really, where you want to put yourself. Because, for instance, like, you know, Gore Vidal famously rejected the whole idea of gay or homosexual. Right. Because he thought that that was, cause that was trying to, like, put in a label and identity on people who just had their experiences and their, and their you know, their love mm-hmm. relationships. Why did it put you in a category, you know? But some people say, well, he was, you know, he is having trouble with self-acceptance, you know? So it's funny, you can't judge other people, you know? But, so, but for me, it's like, certainly all these kind of things have been in, connected to spiritual traditions everywhere. But trans, more than most, because trans involves a breakdown of self into something else. Mm-hmm. At least some does. I mean, some people, they're totally trans from infancy. And so there's not any real change. Right. The only change is in allowing to be, be themselves. But, yeah. but for many people, though, even though it's from when they were very young, they resist it. And then it's the sense of, breaking, of that breaking down and something else emerges. And what emerges is immensely powerful. So there's a shamanic level to that experience. And I know a lot of um, trans people talk about the moment of self-realization, the self-acceptance, which was one person, it was like a glass wall shattering. Hmm. Yeah, her life was always on the other side, but she couldn't quite reach it. But this is a, it's a common kind of thing um, that people allow themselves to look at it. They look at it, oh, yeah, yes, this is in fact who I am. I've been in denial all this time. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm not really a woman, I'm a man. I'm not really a man, I'm a woman. This is my experience. I've suppressed this for years and years all my life until my early 20s. And um, I just felt, due to circumstances, I could not not keep pushing this away. And they said my greatest fear was that, you know, I wanted to be a woman. And so, okay, I'm going to look at it. I'm going to be open. I'm going to look at this. I'm going to say, is this really what it is? And the moment I did that, I go, no, no, I don't want I am a woman. Mm. And that's the truth. Yeah. And I, I was by myself and I came out and told my partner, I said, you know, like, I'm a woman. And my, you know, my partner just went with it. And it was funny because we were together. She was um, assumed straight. But then we became a lesbian couple. And for a while, people were so fast. This was unheard of it back then. This is like the 70s and 80s. It was so unheard of, you know. And people thought it was such a remarkable story. And that we stuck together. And I said, no, you don't understand. Uh, she would have left me if I had been a man. Because hmm. she was becoming really awakened in, in a feminist kind of way. Yeah. And I really didn't want anything to do with men. At least the back time now, because now it's different years later. But, you know, and so it was really important for her too. It wasn't just me that wanted to change the situation. We both did, so we fit together really well. There's something magical in the way it kind of takes you over in the way that you can't deny it. And this goes for any kind of queer kind of thing. Yeah. You know, people who are gay or any other slightly less known letters in this alphabet soup, mm-hmm. <laughs> like asexual, you know, those people have been in denial for a long time. And when they finally get that they have no interest in sex at all, they do not wish to have sexual relationships with people. That's a very, very powerful thing. And of course, it's very spiritual linking. Think of all the um, traditions that require uh, celibacy. Mm-hmm. And those traditions are artificial because they enforce it on people who are not asexual. Mm-hmm. But asexual people have an innate power because they're not sending the energy outwards. It, it, energy is contained and building up from inside. So all kinds of things like that. 
And trans people, though, there's a whole sense in which, you know, you can fight and fight against it, but then it takes you over, and then it's incredibly powerful. The metaphor I came up with a number of times, articles I wrote, was you're, you're in a river, and you're trying to swim against this very powerful current. And the best you can do is exhaust yourself by fighting it and maybe maybe keep from being drowning. Um, but eventually it will just sweep you away. But if you turn around and swim with the current, then you have this incredibly powerful energy carrying you along into amazing experiences. And some of those experiences are for sure magical. You know, I mean, this is so clear to me, the things I've experienced, that they would not happen if I had not already embraced this one magical aspect of my life. I mean, it's just interesting. We were talking earlier about the like personal myth-making. Yeah. Mean, this feels like such a powerful moment in the myth of Rachel Pollock. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you. Yeah. I'm, I'm curious, like, you know, were there other sort of plot points <laughs> that led up to this for you, and particularly from like a spiritual perspective? Okay, my memory is, I'm probably wrong, but my memory is the very first book I read on my own was the very first book Dr. Seuss wrote. He wrote it more years earlier, he wrote it 10 years before I was born, but it was his first book, and somehow that's the one that came into my hands. And it was, the title was something like, and to think I saw it all on Mulberry Street. It was about this little kid whose father says to him, now you should pay attention to the world around you. You're going from school today, look at what happens. I want you to tell me if you see something really interesting that happened. So the kid goes, starts home. He's on, and his walk is on a street called Mulberry Street. And he's, okay, I got to really look and see, you know, what I can tell my daddy, you know? And he sees, you know, someone coming by doing something. And he sees behind them other people. And he sees there's a chariot. And it's being, inside it's like an emperor. And he sees the chariot is being carried by elephants. This is lifted up in the air and it's on wings and it's being carried by gigantic birds and it gets bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger, you know? And he's, he's thinking, and to think, you know, I saw it all on Mulberry Street. And then when he gets home, his father says, well, did you see anything? He goes, uh, no. Because <laughs> he knows he, his father would think he was lying, you know? Yeah, yeah. And I feel that that like, shaped me. All power to the imagination. It's just, there's a, that was an interesting slogan. In the 1968 uprisings in Paris, which was spiritual as well as anarchist. Uh -huh. Their slogan, you know, wasn't all power to the people and it wasn't, um, you know, kill the rich. It was, you know, all power to the imagination. Mm. And that really is my slogan, I would say. So after we speak, I'm sure I'll think of lots of mileposts. Yeah. Um, but nothing springs to mind immediately. Well, of course, you know, the tarot comes to me is certainly one of them. Right. I, I know you've told this story before, but I'm just curious. How did the tarot come to you? But And then also really, how did it, how did you f sweep yourself away into the current of it even more so? Well, I was just, I was teaching at this very cold college out in upstate New York. And one of the other teachers, um, you know, said, if you give me a ride home, I'll read your tarot cards. And I knew next, next to nothing about them. I knew they were featured in T.S. Eliot's poem, The Wasteland. And I knew he'd based on a book called Rituals Romance, which I read in college, which claims the tarot cards were um, derived from the Holy Grail stories and things like this. And But I, otherwise, I knew nothing about them. And so I went there and she got the card, read my cards. And I was... I remember nothing of the reading. It was I didn't feel it was said very much of consequence, but the cards themselves completely, absolutely floored me. And I just had to get those. You know, and what it was was you had these 78 pictures, 
And every one of them was mysterious. Um, the major arcana went in those terms then. You know, they were grand figures who were like strange on their own, you know. But then the other ones, the minor arcana cards, they were like moments in a story. What happened before and what will happen next? Who knows? Where does it come from? You know, I remember the, the card I remember was the Six of Swords. And I was thinking, who are these people? <laughs> Where are they going? Why is why is a woman and child all bent over? Right. Why is nobody speaking? You know, why are there swords in the boat? And my friend had spoke by Eden Gray, the great teacher of that time. And you know, yeah, and I got it when I got a deck, I got an Eden Gray book as well. And it seems at first glance that Eden Gray is giving you the simple explanations because it's very short. Her card, her book would have like um, a picture of the card taking up maybe half the page, you know, and then a little bit of description and then a few lines of what it means readings. And that was it. So it seemed like I was explaining it. But in fact, the explanations were at least as mysterious as the cards. So it was just was so fascinating. I just had to get to do it. And my partner and I, her name was Edith. I was just speaking to her today. She's writing a book, which I'm so excited about, Edith Katz. And, um, and so we went racing around looking for tarot cards. And we finally found some. This was about a year before they became super popular. Okay. They were very hard to find, very obscure. And we did. We both started doing it, really got into it. And yeah, and we just both stayed with it in our different ways. So that was how I got into it. And that was uh, always, always exciting to me. And all these years, so it's you know, half a century now. Right. And um, so all these years, it's like, I sometimes say to classes, or I write, and I say that the only thing I can say for certain is you will never come to the end of it. Right. Absolutely. There's always more and more and more being revealed in those cards, particularly the writer deck. I mean, you know, I did my own deck, the Shining Tribe, which I get great power from. I, I, I love that, you know, people like it are artists, artists and poets like it, which I think is quite wonderful. But still, I actually, in a certain sense, know the writer deck even better. Mm -hmm. But also, the writer deck, there's whole continents I don't know. And I know because I know what I've just seen so far. Right. What I've explored so far. I, I'm, it's obvious there's lots else besides. Yeah, that writer deck, what what Pamela did with those images was truly spectacular because yeah. it just keeps opening up unto itself. Yes. I use a deck that's um called the Oliver Hibbert Tarot. I describe it as if the writer weight dropped acid because <laughs> it's the same people and the same structure of images, but it's quite psychedelic. And so their faces are melting and there's lots of eyeballs okay. and psychedelic yeah, colors. Yeah. And it's not so <laughs> easily gendered. You're not sure if it's a man or a woman. It's uh -huh. just a person with a melting eyeball face, which I think is helpful actually sometimes because I think one of the more contemporary criticisms of the writer is that it's just all a bunch of white medieval people. And so yeah, if you're not a no. white medieval person, it, it can sometimes feel like you're being barred entry from the mirror. I, I think that's people demanding that things made simple. Interesting. <laughs> I, 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 I get it. I really do get it. I'm being facetious, facetious here. That's fascistic, fascistic. <laughs> Hard to pronounce that word. Anyway, um, like the court cards, you know, they don't have to be gendered the way the picture shows them. Right. right. And Pamela Coleman Smith was very, um, I don't know if she's playful, is, I guess, the word about gender. Yeah. So, you know, some of her nicest female models mm -hmm. um, and some of the queens had male models, you know. For sure. And, and she played a lot. And the pages, certainly the page of 
cups and the page of wands, I think, or maybe the page of pentacles, are very feminine. Yeah. yeah. And the only one that's really masculine is the page of swords. Right. Yeah, and that feels like that lends itself to the theatricality of it. Yeah, too, yeah. That piece of yes, it. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, and if she herself, you know, she had a lot of lesbian friends, there's some question of whether she might be a lesbian. That's been contested because we don't have any real proof. Right. Um, I, went to, I went to this lecture by this wonderful British woman. She's a long-term occultist in, in the British community. She owns this famous bookstore. And, and she's very kind of, this great tech character type in England, which is um, posh, aristocratic, but really radical. Mm. And outrageous, you know. Love that. And she says, "I'm gonna try to imitate the accent. We do terrible jobs." So <laughs> but she says, "The question has come up as to whether Pamela Coleman Smith might have been a lesbian." Well, um, all her friends were lesbians, <laughs> and she lived with a woman, and she never married a man. You make your own conclusion. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, come on. If that wonderful? was your sister, we'd all know, you know. Yeah. Say, yeah, exactly. So. You know, and, but it's, but I mean, there's a certain lesbophobia involved in the assumption that you can't say she was lesbian mm. you don't have absolute proof because like that's saying a terrible thing about her right mm. and do you say that unless you have absolute proof you know sure as opposed to in our world where that would be raising her up frankly <laughs> now yes <but> even, <laughs> even for queer people what the long ago in which you would never say something like that about someone unless you had proof right well i want to shift gears a little bit okay. um and ask you about the goddess because okay. your book the yep. body of the goddess it's just is such a nourishing exploration. Mm. And there's a, there's a quote that I want to kind of read back to you. You say that the goddess, she is not the same as the goddess of thousands of years ago. Mm. A religion based on the divine body is a religion of change. Mm. So I'm curious, who is the goddess of today? <laughs> How has she changed? And I get it. It's who? How, who am I to answer who? Right. The goddess yeah. of today? Yes. She exists. This is the goddess of today? Yes. Yes, <laughs> she's here. But I'm, I am curious if we could just explore, you know, how has the goddess changed? And, and who is the goddess that we need as contemporary people in these times in which we're living? I have to play with that question again, what you, what you just said. I think you could, if someone interviewed you, they could say, um, well, where do we find gay people? <laughs> right. You can do the two-part question with that. that would be right, funny. right. Um, well, first of all, I mean, the goddess of old doesn't vanish. Right. But it's just, you know, she evolves. And all the different gods, of course, one of the great things about goddesses is not just one. Well, no, well to some people, there is. Mm -hmm. You know, some of the people talk about the one goddess. Right. You know? um, but most people into goddess worship, you really see that, you know, the goddess of a thousand names, Isis was called that. But, you know, so Isis is very much present in our lives, and it's certainly different. It's, it's not going to be just like it was in ancient Egypt. But the ancient Egypt stuff feeds into what we have now, just as the ancient Roman versions of Isis do. A lot of our ideas of Isis come from Rome. They come from a famous uh, poem about Isis and Osiris. Um, no way, I take that back. That's actually... Um, Eros and Psyche, which right. is based somewhat on Isis and Osiris. See, it's all, there's all these complicated things of that time because everything was merging with everything else. And also things have evolved so much. You, you know, Kabbalah, you'll have a lot of ancient mythological stuff that's completely refigured and repurposed, both Hebrew and non-Hebrew, you know? And they put it into their own form. This is constantly happening. So for religion to be living, even also I think Christianity, 
you know, my friends who are Christians, their sense of Christ is different than it would have been a thousand years ago or 200 years ago and so on. And the people who try to make it exactly what it was, I just, to me, that if that's, if that's just meaningful for them, that's great. You know, I shouldn't be sort of dismissive of them. But to me, it's like they're missing a lot. And also, probably it's also true that even people, like for instance, the, um, some of the neo-Orthodox Jews, some of them, I think, believe that they're completely following the Judaism of several hundred years ago, mm-hmm. but they're not. It constantly evolves. And many of them know that too. They're very aware of that because they're always adapting things, they're always adapting laws that didn't have applications in the old times. Um, now, I should actually check on this with somebody. There's a prohibition on the Sabbath of turning on and off lights, which people think it's supposed about work. It's not really work to flip a switch. That's ridiculous. It's just being idiotic. But if you actually read up on that stuff, you listen to people who know, they say it's not about labor. It's about changing states of energy. Oh. You know, the energy should remain stable from Friday night to Saturday night. Oh. So you're not shifting out of that contemplative spiritual moment. Mm-hmm. And one of the ways you would shift out would be turning on a light or turning off a light. Right. Things like that. Um, so, but, uh, but you can leave something on. Um, and in Israel, I guess this is about need. In Israel, when they were being attacked by rockets from Iraq, they had to have alerts, right? But the alerts would come over the radio, and the Orthodox people couldn't turn on the radio. So the rabbis met and they made a rule. And this is so the mind of the strictly Orthodox in any religion. Um, that if it's not closed off, you know, if it evolves. So they made a rule. They said, you can leave the radio on. You turn it on on Friday afternoon. You leave it on until Saturday night. But you can't have it loud enough to hear it. All you'll hear is a murmur. Then, if there's going to be an alert, the alert is very, very loud. So you'll hear it. And then you can use your elbow to turn the knob to make it loud enough to listen. <laughs> the elbow. <laughs> yes. The elbow. I love that. And, and the justification for that is not because you're an idiot, <laughs> which is, sounds, sounds ridiculous, doesn't it? But the justification is you're not doing things the way you always do them. Hmm. You're not doing things in a mindless pattern that you would do for six days of the week. Got it. So you're still in a contemplative state to some yeah, degree. Yeah, you're still making a special effort to do it differently. And I, I just love that. And that, so that shows that even the most strictly traditional religious people evolve. Yeah. yeah. Because they have to. They live in a world that's different than it was hundreds of years ago. But the goddess thing evolves more dynamically because people are using it to address things of now, for sure. And partly because it was suppressed for so long. Right? Yes. So it's what, you know, Freud's famous line, line the return of the repressed, mm-hmm. which he meant in symptoms. Mm-hmm. That things you repress neurotically, they come out in symptoms. But the return of the repressed, it means also spiritual truth. Yeah. And I do feel like the underpinnings of the great world's religions are still hidden to us to some degree. Yeah. Um, just in kind of exploring my own Hebrew ancestry and, mm-hmm. and kind of going back in some journey work to like pretty far back ancestors. I have discovered, um, well, I'll just share with you. There's this one spirit with whom I work, who's an ancestor who kind of presents as a transcestor. And oh, that's great. And, uh, and I, I call them booby and has kind of shown <laughs> me about the more goddess roots of Judaism Wonderful. that, are not really found too much in the texts. 
Now, do you know the book, the um, two books, The Hebrew Goddess? I do not. The Raphael Patai. No, it's I don't a know that one. Major, major book. And then um, The Hebrew Priestess by Jill Hammer and someone else came with the other woman. No. And Jill Hammer, the other woman, Jill's a rabbi. I don't know if I say Jill, I don't know her personally. Um, <laughs> well, she used to live around here, though. So. Anyway, but so she and this other woman founded a school to um, train and ordain priestesses in the Jewish tradition, going back to biblical time and bringing it to the modern day. So a lot of what that book is very much about is learning the ancient thing, ancient goddesses, the ancient figures, and then bring it into the modern day. In Raphael Patai's book, The Hebrew Goddess, I think I, he worked with, did it with someone, I don't know if it's still it might have been somebody else, it might have been her, but he began by talking about, um, you know, in ancient times, who was the goddess of ancient Israel? That was suppressed by the you know patriarchal religion right and how did that figure in people's lives then he went on to medieval and the shekinah um and that became a big thing but then, then it became brought out by contact with goddess people so those are two books that would be very meaningful to you thank you for sharing that i'm excited the goddess and the hebrew priestess dive in there um well i want to share with you just one thing which is that we recently moved out of like central Los Angeles and we're kind of on the outskirts in a part of town called Tahunga, which is okay. a, um, it's an indigenous word, which means woman's place or possibly oh, cool. wow. uh, grandmother. And so there's uh -huh. this mountain, it's the big Tahunga mountains. And there's this one <laughs> mountain and I was reading your book, The Body of the Goddess, yeah. and the synchronicity of one day, just we're in this new house and we're looking out at the mountain and you can see the profile of a grandmother's face in the mountain. I mean, it's and that's part so, of why, I'm sure. Yeah, and it's so clear and you understand, oh, right, this is the grandmother whom they were naming yeah. in yeah. this place and you can relate. So when I'm when I'm doing work and we've only been here a couple of weeks now, but it's I can feel that presence, you know, that direct oh, yeah. connection to that's wonderful. Yeah. That's to wonderful. the goddess, but it's it's one aspect. And I love hearing you say there's many goddesses, but you know, they're all aspects of of the goddess or they're all connected in some way through this. But I think at the same time it's just as important to keep their individuality. Yes. You know Right. I, I find that some people want to merge it because it's, it's so monotheistic. Right. And they feel it's really important to merge stuff. You know? No, I think that's important. Like Athena is not Hecate, right? They have very mm. different expressions. Although I actually have this new theory. Okay. Which is that Medusa is Athena of the snakes. Oh. But that actually, <laughs> Athena was a snake goddess, and then they took it away from her. And then they had it be the enemy that she conquers. Oh, wow. And has Medusa's head in her shield. Part of the reason for this was that a friend of mine who's connected to a lot of this research, she told me that before the Acropolis, um, before the Parthenon, I guess it was, on the hill of the Acropolis, there was a, a wooden temple to Athena, and it was a snake temple. And the priests of the morning would feed the snakes, snakes would come around and be fed. And then it burned down. My friend says the suspicion it was burned down by the men. Because, of course, the Parthenon is a totally masculine place. And Athena was then reimagined as completely dedicated to patriarchy. Oh, fascinating. You know? And so, so I got that, this is fairly intuitive, and I have no proof, that um, Medusa was actually Athena. I love so that. So now I have several Medusa necklaces. I, I, call, I always call her Athena of the Snakes. I, see, I, 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 I wish you could see there is a Medusa sticker on my computer yeah. that I'm looking oh, at great. right now. There's only two stickers on this computer, and I'm so drawn to Medusa. Um, oh, yeah. Great character, isn't she? Yeah. yeah, yeah. She's phenomenal. And the snakes and 
And interesting that you called me a snake shedding my skin earlier know, today. Right? Yeah. So I'll have to lean into that. You should. Well, I'm aware that we need to, to start to wind things down here. So in closing here, Rachel, I did another, I think, very Rachel Pollock thing, which I <laughs> used the Shining Tribe Tarot. And I said, what questions am I not thinking to ask Rachel? Oh, I love that. Yes. <laughs> so... I shared the four cards I pulled with Angel, and he chose okay. one, and I chose one. So I think okay. we're just going to tell you what those cards are, okay. and you might help us discern what questions have we not asked you based okay. on these cards. <laughs> okay. So, so here's what I did. I kind of looked at all the cards, and I thought, okay, what are they kind of leading me to? And this is what I this is kind of what I came up okay. with. So, so let me just tell you what all the cards were, just so you understand. So it was eight of trees reversed, nine mm -hmm. of birds, knower of rivers reversed and the hanged woman. Wow. And so my question or what I wrote was not being afraid to surrender to your path, but also not getting stuck in any one expression of the soul. So much reinvention in your life. And yet always, always a storyteller, always a knower of rivers. Um, yes, yeah, reversed. Right. So that's an interesting question. So what comes to mind with me in what way have you not yet emerged from the cave? Mm. Yeah, that's interesting. What did you resist knowing? Yeah. Yeah, so those are difficult questions. And I wouldn't I wouldn't want to answer that myself. I'd have to do the cards to answer that. For sure. Yeah. Yeah, I'll think about that. But that's a beautiful question, I think, even just to pose to our listeners too, which is to contemplate yeah. like in what ways have you still not emerged from the cave? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Or what ways you need not to emerge? What ways you need to stay, spend more time in the cave right. with a positive kind of sense? Yeah, 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 and stay hidden in some ways. Yeah, and... or even, or even as you know, as you emerge from the cave, what do you keep back or keep with you of your experience in the cave? Mm, right. Because you know, a certain sense that once we emerge, we're now in this whole new reality, and the old stuff is left behind. Right. Actually, no emerges river and hiding the woman are both about. You can no rivers can you think it's about being born. The high woman is of course about being born. Because mm -hmm. babies are born upside down. Right. Head first. All kinds of wonderful things you can come up with that. Yeah. Well, and interesting just hearing everything you said and also hearing that you are working on your memoir, which is so exciting. Yeah, I'm very excited about that. And, and that so that's a certain that answers the question too. Yeah. Um, I'm in the cave though, because I'm going back into the cave. Right. To re-experience certain things that I'm bringing out into the world, but then maybe, so maybe, maybe what's really going on is not being in or out, but going back and forth. Right. Yeah. And what do you keep, sort of tucked within, and what do yeah. you bring out with? Yeah. So what was the other the other card? Oh, says, mine was the nine of birds because that's such a, such a electric card. Um, wow. Two transit cards. Yes. You know? Yeah. And I think that that certainly says a lot to me. That's something to really think about. But I should write that down. <laughs> think about doing readings about it, maybe, you know? Wow. Yeah. Nine of Birds is definitely one of those cards that, you know, you don't really want to see. No, for sure. You have to reframe it when it shows up so you can greet it properly. Yeah. Well, you know, you can also focus on the nice stuff, you know? <laughs> the goddess coming out of the tomb. Totally. Anyway, yeah, so I'm definitely going to be thinking about those two cards. Well, Rachel, 
this has been such a delight for us. I'm so grateful. Oh, it's really been, I've been, had a great time. Thank that you. That you came yeah. to the spiritual gaze universe. I or I love what you said, tarot land. So I'm going to start calling it <laughs> the spiritual gaze okay. land. Thank you for yeah. coming into the spiritual gaze land with spiritual us. Spiritual gaze land. Yes, yes exactly. <laughs> well, thank you. This really was wonderful. I really had a great time. Oh, good, Rachel. Thank well, you thank so you. Much. Thank you so much. And yeah, okay. so nice to meet you. Take care. Yeah, you too. Okay, bye. Bye. <laughs> Thank you, Rachel. Thank you for all of your gifts and all of your offerings. What a fucking beautiful opportunity that was. I know. We got to like speak to like a real like cultural legend. They say never meet your heroes, but in this case, it was great that we did. Yeah. She did not disappoint. Yeah. Yeah, we got to have like a really long conversation too, like that you know wasn't a part of the interview we were just kind of chatting and having a good time so it was great all right everyone and now it is time for this episode's tarot card all right so just take a moment and check in with your heart connect to the cards by listening into the sound of them being shuffled and just trusting that this message will resonate no matter the future time or place in which you listen to this episode. This has never happened before. What? Two. Two cards. Oh. And it is the Six of Cups direct and the Four of Wands reversed. Both beautiful cards, beautiful energies. The Six of Cups is an expansion of the heart. In it, we see you offering a cup of loving kindness to your inner child. The Four of Wands reversed is a spiritual structure that you can take with you anywhere. It's just four wands put into the ground. It's not like a church. It's not a temple. It's a movable structure, but it is the foundation. It can go anywhere. And so I would just say that together, what these cards suggest is that your healing is something that can happen anywhere. And that it happens wherever you are, so long as you are tending to it. And sometimes we think like, oh, well, my healing can only happen in a breathwork session. My healing can only happen on retreat. My healing only happens in therapy. And it's like, no, 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 this is something that's happening all the time wherever you go. And sometimes if you're really on a deep healing journey, life is offering you gifts all the time, insights, clues, people, places, things that might trigger you to notice a deeper layer of healing that has to happen, but that also might serve as a healing. And our ability to receive is how we integrate the healing. Receiving kindness, receiving compliments, receiving insights, not just rushing through our lives, but actually being porous and letting ourselves be affected by what's happening can actually provide deep healing. And the last thing I would say about this is that the Six of Cups is the expansion of your heart. It's your heart being able to give more and hold more. But the Four of Wands reversed is a challenge in receiving your own progress. So sometimes we just like have to stop where we are and notice how far we've come and noticing how far we've come, noticing that we have healed this, we have moved through this successfully, we're still here. That actually helps lay the foundation for this next expansion that wants to come through. So before you reach for the next gold ring, look in your hands and see what rings you already have on. That's all she got. 
I guess it was two cards because it was the farewell to Mars and Gemini. Oh, yeah. I like that. I just have to say I'm so grateful for you. For me. For you. For Pluto. (laughs) You're an amazing human. I'm glad we get to do this together. Oh, honey. I feel the same way. I wouldn't want anyone else to be my captain's wife. (laughs) (laughs) And I think that reading was just like a good reminder for us all that like you are stronger than you know. Or maybe even more so you are stronger than you think you know. Yeah. You're certainly stronger than Larsa Pippen. (laughs) (laughs) And if you don't know, don't don't bother. Don't find out. (laughs) Garbage. Thank you all for being here with us, for just, you know, coming along for the tomfoolery ride that is the spiritual gaze, uh, landing on our uh, five-year anniversary just in a few months, which is so wonderful and strange and crazy, and we're here. Yeah. We're still here. I actually here. think our retreat might coincide with that five-year anniversary, Oh, shit. Yeah, you're right. We're looking at the weekend of like June 23rd through the 25th here in Los Angeles. Uh, So we'll make an official announcement in a week or two and open up for registration. But just know if you've been wanting to join us for a retreat, I'm pretty sure that that weekend is when we're going to do it at a beautiful property kind of tucked into the mountains in the outskirts of Los Angeles. Yeah. But yeah, our uh, June, we were born June of 2018. The spiritual gaze is a Gemini. Yes, we are. Because there's two of us and we're always talking. (laughs) (laughs) Until next time, this has been your transit through the spiritual gaze. She's been living that Pluto life. She's been married to a captain's wife. She's been swimming in a heap of strife. Because Pluto is Pluto is Pluto is. Till the summer.